Well, I'm excited today to jump back into the book of Romans. And as we do, I want to tell you a little secret about myself. Depending on how long you've been here, there's a lot of things you might know about me, but you might not know this. I love post-it notes. I love post-it notes. I use them all the time, all over everything. In fact, to some degree, my ministry and personal life are held together with post-it notes. I've got post-it notes hanging out of all the books that I'm reading to remind me of a sermon idea or an illustration or a worksheet. Some days I've got post-it notes all around the edge of the screen of my computer. I use post-it notes on the dashboard of my car to remind me to go pick somebody up. If I do anything that's out of the ordinary of my normal routine, if I don't have a post-it note saying, go do this, I'll forget and I'll do what I normally do. I got post-it notes on the bathroom mirror. I mean, some days as simple as what day it is. So that when I stagger in there, when my alarm goes off and I stagger into the bathroom, many days my, my mind is just screaming. First big question, what day is it? Today was one of those days, literally. I mean, the alarm went off. It's 5.30, by the way. It's pitch dark. Everything within me is saying, what? Whoa, what day is it? Why am I up this early? What am I supposed to be thinking? Because without post-it notes, I'd forget who I am, where I'm supposed to be. And what I'm supposed to say and do when I get there. But I don't think that's me alone. I don't think I'm the only one with this condition. Because post-it notes is a billion dollar industry. Now I know what some of you young people are thinking. Ah, there's electronic ways to do that now. My answer, oh shut up. No. I know there's electronic ways to do that. But there's nothing quite like kicking it old school with post-it notes. huh? Just there it is, right there. It's a billion dollar industry. Because I'm not the only one that needs to remember. And here's the other reason that post-it notes have a leg up on the electronic version of doing these things. Did you know that post-it notes had their beginning in church? Yeah. One more reason to love it. Post-it notes began in church because the inventor of post-it notes was Art Fry, who in 1974 was a newly hired products developer at 3M, the 3M company. And he also sang in his church choir. And he was so tired of trying to mark in his hymn book with little scraps of paper the hymns they were going to sing on Sunday. And all those little scraps kept falling out that he got an idea. He'd been working on at work. He got an idea to use some new adhesive that he'd been trying to develop at 3M that did not stick. So now imagine this. 3M has made billions of dollars because a guy named Art Fry was working on a glue that didn't work. Yeah. Now, 40 years later, there are 400 different post-it note products. 400. They come in 27 sizes, 56 shapes, 22 dispensers, 57 color schemes, and even 20 different fragrances. Yeah. Now, if you're thinking, Brad, I got all excited. You said you were going on back to Romans. What does this have to do with Romans? Hang on. I'm going to make a connection here. I'm going to stick a post-it note that connects Romans and this right here. And I've not started working part-time as a sales rep for 3M. That's not what's going on. Here's why I'm telling you this. I want you to see where God has left us an amazing post-it note. Did you know that God left you a post-it note this morning? He did. And you can see it in the 8th chapter of Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 8 in your Bible with me. Because I believe Romans chapter 8 really is a post-it note. But don't hear what I'm not saying. When I say Romans chapter 8 is a post-it note, it's not because it's little and it's not because it's insignificant. Oh, no, 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 no. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
But I tell you that the content of Romans chapter 8 is a post-it note because Paul is not really saying anything new in Romans chapter 8. That he did not already gloriously describe to us in the first seven chapters of Romans. The content of Romans chapter 8 is not small or insignificant. In fact, Romans chapter 8 is the apex, apex of the book of Romans. But he's really not saying anything new that he hadn't already said in the first seven chapters. But God doesn't mind reminding us because he knows how easily we forget. So what's on God's post-it note for us in Romans chapter 8 this morning and why? Well, before we dig down into it, let me bring you back up to speed and catch up with a little background on Romans. Because we hit pause on the book of Romans back in November as we headed into the holidays and then some vision messages this year. So let's catch back up with what has happened so far in Romans and what is going on. Here's what I told you. If the book of Romans is the peak of the Bible, and I believe it is, the book of Romans is the crown jewel. If the book of Romans is the peak of the Bible, then chapter 8 in Romans is the pinnacle of that peak. Because in Romans chapter 8, you see Paul restating in a vastly expanded form what he's already carefully taught in Romans 5, 1 to 11. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the book of Romans is one of those books that is one of the most tightly reasoned and argued books. It's careful. And he doesn't repeat himself that often. It's almost like a courtroom case with an attorney building a case. That's how Paul comes across. And a lot of the Greek language is legal language. So he doesn't repeat himself that often at all in the book of Romans where there's some other books that do. Why does he backtrack right here? Why does Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, backtrack and repeat in a vastly expanded form what's going on with our salvation between us and God? Well, J.I. Packer, author and theologian, says this. The short answer, he says, and it's really not as silly as you might think when you first hear it. J.I. Packer says the reason Paul wrote chapter 8 of Romans is because he just wrote chapter 7. But here's what he means by that. Remember what Romans 7 was like? We got, we got Romans 1, 2, and 3 that's all about sin, 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 sin. You're a sinner. Get it. You're a sinner. You're not an exception. Then we got Romans 5 and 6 that's like, oh my goodness. Look what God's done for sinners. Look at the salvation. Look at the justification, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ. It's not your works. It's what he's done. And then he rolls into Romans 7 that can be a real downer where he says, yeah, but let me make sure you understand Oh, there's this, but here's what your everyday life can feel like sometimes. It is a fight. It is messy. Some of the very things I say I don't want to do anymore, I do. And some of the things say I want to do more of that, they get left undone. Oh, there's this struggle and it can be so discouraging at times. And so he says, because Paul has just spent time in Romans chapter 7, reminding them that yes, you've been delivered from the penalty and the power of sin, but not the very presence of sin yet. That's still very much alive in you. You've got this body of sin, this body of death, this flesh to contend with while you're on this earth. 
And so Paul's emotions pretty much explode at the end of Romans chapter 7, verse 24, when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death that I've been talking about all through Romans chapter 7? And it's not a rhetorical question. He's not desperately looking for an answer that someone in the crowd would shout out an answer. It's rhetorical. Because Paul knows that his total deliverance from sin through Jesus Christ will one day be his. But right now, there's a struggle. And that struggle can be so intense at times. Certain days more than others. That 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 struggle can overshadow the truth of who you are in Christ now. Some days more than others. And can really cause you to say, has anything significant happened in me or not? Am I really a Christian? Am I the only one? Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm missing a secret. And that's why so many Christian books sell so well with, here's the secret. Here's the five keys. Here's the steps. To get you out of this struggle and this mess and into the zone. The zone up here. And Paul's saying... Don't keep looking for the zone. There's not a zone. It's messy and there's a struggle. But don't forget who you are. Don't forget what he's given you. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. He knows that all this talk. He knows that all this talk about the law in chapter 7. And what the law does. That the law actually stirs up sin in us. The law doesn't solve sin. It makes you even more aware that you are a sinner. He knows that all that he's written in Romans chapter 7 has probably so stirred it up again that, he, that we, he's got us too much focused on our failure, guilt, the struggle, and discouragement that we're not all we want to be. Why am I still so pathetic? Why do I fall so short? Why is this still such a battle? J.I. Packer says this, and I quote, The writing of these verses in Romans 7 had clouded Paul's own joy. And as a good pastor, always thinking of the effect of his words and what they would, how they would affect people. See, get this. Look at me a minute. Paul wasn't just an evangelist missionary that went around proclaiming the gospel and then just left people to sort it out. He had a pastor's heart. Yeah, he was an evangelist and a missionary, but he had a pastor's heart. He started churches. He set up elders. He wrote letters to help them know how to deal with marriage problems and parenting problems and pride problems and anger problems. He cared about what happened after you were saved and how to keep you moving forward, changing and growing. Paul had a pastor's heart. And so knowing what he's just written in Romans 7, he anticipates the discouragement that may have settled in and how they may have lost perspective. He knew that the reading of the words in Romans 7 would spread the gloom. And he does not think it's right to leave the Roman Christians contemplating the sad side of their experience. And feeling as if they were back under the law. So he sees the need to remind them at once that what is decisive is not what the law says about them. But what the gospel says. Because the gospel demands the last word. Paul now picks back up again. The theme of Christian assurance and develops it as forcefully as he can from no condemnation at the start of Romans 8 to no separation at the conclusion. There's a reason that Romans chapter 8 is one of the favorite chapters in all the Bible. There's there's Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there's Romans 8. 
So many Christians have memorized Romans 8. So many Christians love Romans 8. So many Christians know some important verses in Romans 8. Why? Because it's so precious and beautiful, by the way, beautifully written and powerfully reminds us of the things that we so much most need to know on our worst days. It starts with no condemnation and he ends with no separation from the love of God, despite how messy it still is, despite how pathetic you still are, despite how many times you still stumble and fall, despite how real this battle feels, despite how alive sin still seems in your flesh, there now is for you as a Christian, no condemnation. And there is for you as a Christian, nothing that can separate you from the love of God because it's in Christ Jesus, not your performance. Woo! There's a reason this chapter is so good. And if you discount Romans 7 and saying that's not talking about believers like some do, it takes the punch out of Romans 8. There's a reason he's giving us Romans 8 because he knows Romans 7 is so real. That he's saying, oh man, come back, come back, come back, come back. Some of you are looking at yourself too much. Some of you are depressed. Some of you are so discouraged. Some of you are thinking about throwing in the towel. Don't. Because look at this. Look at this. So what did God write on his post-it note for us to remember when we're in the midst of fighting sin on our very worst day, feeling discouraged, feeling depressed, thinking about quitting because we're wondering, why am I still struggling so badly? Now, I've been here 19 years now, and I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done on Sunday morning before. I'm going to read an entire chapter of the Bible. And so many times I'll say, oh, this whole chapter is so good. Go home today and read the rest. This is so good. We're doing it right here, right now. Right now. And here's why. Because I believe if you don't hear anything else, I say these 39 verses could change your life. So sit up straight. Don't start thinking about the Seahawks and the nasty patriots. Don't, don't do any of that. <laughs> Don't let your mind go other places. Not whatever you're facing at work tomorrow. Not that worst relationship that's bothering you. I want you to tune in, lock in to one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. If you've got a real Bible, get it open. If you've got an electronic Bible, get there and follow along because I want you to see it for yourself. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no See, he doesn't say one day, someday, there'll be no condemnation. There's a lot of things that haven't happened yet that are going to happen in the future. Praise God, condemnation is not one of them. Right now, there's no condemnation. Say amen. Thank you, Jesus. There is therefore now. Why does he tell you that? Because we so often feel so condemned. And think, no, I'm still condemned. I'm still covered over in guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do. Law can't save you. For what the law could not do in that it was weak. Why can't the law save you? Because it's up to you and your weak flesh to keep it. And you can't. But there's some good news here. For what the law could not do in that it's weak through the flesh. Two great words. God did. Say it. God did. God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, 
He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's a word for hostility. Your natural lost mind, the way you were born, is against God. Hostile. For the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. So look at anyone who goes to a different church and tells you, have you had the second blessing? Do you have the spirit? Do you have the spirit? You got to speak in tongues and show that you have the spirit. You got to have the second thing that happens to you. The Bible tells you, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you're not even saved. When you got saved, you got the spirit. Don't go looking for some second blessing and something else you need to do. And you don't have to speak in tongues to prove it. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, in light of this stuff I just told you, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, of fear again, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope 
for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare, and he anticipates that you might be saying, how do I know God's for me? How do I know God's for me? This job is pretty stinky. My health isn't good. My relationships aren't good. How do I know God's for me? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God. Who justifies? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even seated at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And all God's people said, yeah, clap if you want to. And we could sing a song and go home. But I worked real hard on more. So we're going to stay. But I mean, be honest. Isn't that good? Oh my goodness. It's so good. From no condemnation in verse 1 to no separation in verse 39. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a God. What a gift. If you've lost sight of what the main thing is in Christianity, if you got confused in whatever church you grew up in, You just heard the very heart 
of Christianity. You just heard in a glorious way expounded the crown jewel and diamond of the gospel that it's not something you earn, it's not something you merit, it's not something you achieve, it's not a checklist, it's not a system, it's not a building, it's a savior and it's a person, Jesus Christ. And that's why when you have this, it cannot be taken away from you because it didn't start with you. It doesn't finish with you. And it's not up to you in the middle to keep it alive. It's God's free gift. And he knows after Romans 7 that there'd be some people saying, oh, I'm a mess. Oh, look how often I fail. I'm very depressed. I'm very discouraged. Maybe there's something wrong with me. And so he comes back to the real hope. Yeah, you may be falling down. You may be discouraged. You may be still struggling, but you're not condemned. Oh, yeah, you may still be in a fight. But it doesn't separate you from the love of God because that's found in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Nothing can separate you from that. So what is on God's post-it note that he wants us to see? I want to show you two, two things on the post-it note today and then two more next Sunday. Reminders that God wants to, to have Stuck right on the heart of every believer. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I am so glad you're here. Don't check out and say, oh, wow, you get to sit and listen in on a conversation as I talk to Christians about what the gospel really is and what God has done for us. But listen to me, don't tune out. It could be yours today. What you hear me talk about could be yours today. Not by shaking my hand or walking this aisle or signing a card or putting money in the box or joining the church today. By grace alone means it's a free gift. You don't deserve it. Through faith alone, you don't work for it. In Christ alone, it's all about a person. You could walk out of here having personally what I'm about to talk about. So scoot up close and tune in. I'm talking to believers about what God wants to remind you about. But I'm talking to unbelievers saying, don't you want this? Don't you want this? This is so much better than religion. I am not extolling and explaining a religion today. I am showing you a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And what that looks like and what that does in your life. Number one, reminder, stuck right there. If you're a Christian, you need to take a closer look at the way you're fighting sin now in your life. You need to take a closer look at the way you're fighting sin now. And that's what you see in the first 13 verses. Do we still sin as believers? Blood bought, saved, forgiven, ransomed, redeemed, justified believers. Do we still sin? Oh, yeah. And don't let anybody try to convince you otherwise. That's another mess. You know, perfectionism is possible now. You can reach a point where you never sin. Hogwash. Otherwise, there wouldn't be Romans 7. That's not going to happen. You are still going to sin and you're going to still have to fight and struggle against sin. You're going to still battle sin with good days and bad days. But get this, what we see in Romans chapter 8 is that your good days will start to outnumber your bad days when you begin to understand how you're supposed to fight now and that you're not fighting alone. One of the huge shifts that you see in Paul's letter is in Romans 7, it's law, 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 law. And in Romans 8, it just explodes with reference to the spirit. Spirit, 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 spirit. You got the spirit of God living in you. The spirit of Christ lives in you. The spirit, the spirit, the spirit. We still have to fight sin, but you fight sin in a new way now. We don't fight in our own strength with the same old weapons. 
Let me say it to you this way. Sin still remains. It's not eradicated from your life yet. Sin still remains, but things are not the same. Sin still remains, but things are not the same. The battle's being fought on, not being fought on the same terms. New terms. There have been some radical changes, and I want you to remind you of what those radical changes are from Romans 8. Here's the first. You fight with a free heart now. You fight with a free heart now. You say, Brad, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean, and hopefully you can relate to it. It's enough to fight sin and have a very real enemy, Satan, who goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, who's a liar and a deceiver and an accuser. But when you fight at the same time, also unsure as to whether or not you are accepted by God and loved by God, thinking that his love is measured out based on how well you fight, It's a game changer. If you're fighting and at the same time doing that daisy thing, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. I failed yesterday. I ripped the kids' heads off yesterday. I lost my temper. I I don't know if he loves me. Tragic. You fight with a free heart now. You're not fighting to achieve or earn or merit God's love. That's settled in Christ. He loves you. He accepts you. You're his adopted son or daughter. And now you fight compelled by his love. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ compels me. That's what moves me now. I'm not fighting with a checklist trying to earn God's favor. There's no condemnation. Look at verse 1. You have a free heart. There's no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you do have to slug it out against sin, but you don't have to slug it out With your heart covered over with guilt. Guilt, guilt, guilt. The second thing you want to see about this free heart in verse 4. There's no expectation of keeping the law. The focus for a believer is not trying to keep the law. The focus for a believer is I'm married to Christ. I'm engaged to Christ. I've got an engagement ring already of the Holy Spirit living in me. That's a pledge. It's a down payment of what's to come. He's my bridegroom. I'm alive and engaged to him. And now I fight out of love for him and gratitude for him. And with his help living in me. It's not law. Law is not no expectation of keeping the law. And so it's not a fight to achieve anything It's a fight because of what God has done. Now, the other thing you see about this free heart is you fight with the Spirit's power now. So you fight with a free heart. You don't have to be covered over with condemnation and guilt. And you fight with the Spirit's power now. Look at what the the Spirit does for you as a believer now. That the unbeliever, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't get any of this. But listen in. So I think it would help you. What you see... Romans 8 telling us about the Spirit. Look in verse 5 and 6. The Spirit renews your mind to think differently. Oh, you still have this body of flesh and still very real. But you think differently now. Ephesians chapter 4 said that before when you were lost, not a Christian, your mind was darkened. It's lights out, baby. Now as a Christian, lights on. It doesn't mean you understand everything perfectly, but you understand things in a whole new way. You see life in a different way. You have a perspective you didn't have. The Spirit enables you to think differently. Lights have come on in your mind. Look at verse 8 and 9. The Spirit enables you to please God. You couldn't even please God before. Now, can unbelievers do good things? Sure. Sure. 
But even the good that they do is motivated with the wrong heart and it still doesn't please God. As a believer, you can please God now. Motivated by love of God and for God and his kingdom. You didn't have that capacity before. The spirit allows you to think differently. The lights come on. You can actually please God now and live for something bigger than, your, bigger than yourself. We saw that in 2 Corinthians 5 last week. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again. You can please God. And then look at verse 13. The Spirit empowers you to go after your sins of the flesh and put them to death. There's a new power. You are not just fighting on your own. You're not just fighting with the same old weapons. You know, hold me accountable. Hold me accountable. Don't hear me saying there's no place for accountability. But do hear me say, I do believe even in the Christian community, we have shortchanged the role of the Holy Spirit and God's Word. You read a hundred years ago and everybody was not running around looking for an accountability partner. They were reading their Bibles and going directly to the throne of grace to find mercy to help in time of need. And they were aware of the Holy Spirit living in them. Again, please don't hear me saying there's no place for accountability. But it shouldn't take over. He's given you the most glorious accountability part. You can call your accountability partner and they're tied up in a a strategic meeting at work and they can't answer their cell phone. Bummer. You will never cry out to God in your moment of temptation and just get a busy signal because he's responding to too many people in Bangladesh. And so, you know, the lines are just... You get his grace and mercy immediately. And if you fed on his word that morning, he can use his spirit to make his word alive to you. He can help you. He lives in you. This is huge. You don't fight along. But I told you a few weeks ago, you got to feed the spirit. And he thrives on word of God. Are you feeding the spirit? Are you giving him anything to work with? That's your choice. Sometimes I hear testimonies that are contrary to what I'm about to say. Whatever. Someone will say, oh, and he brought a verse to my mind that I've never even seen before or even knew existed. Okay, maybe. What he usually does is he reminds you of what you have read. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. You got this person living in you. Read God's word. Pray, go direct access to the throne and the spirit of God will work with you and empower you to fight sin in a whole new way. So here's the, here's the big difference. Christians, it's not that we don't sin anymore. We don't struggle with sin. Christians have new desires. A new first love. New desires. A new first love. That's why we get so bummed out sometimes because I actually want to please God. I actually want to pursue holiness. Thank God for that desire because that's not natural. It is an indication that you're alive, that you are a Christian. So that's what makes this so hard. It's like, oh, I actually want to please God. I desire the things of God. I have a new first love, but oh man, I did this again. Christians have new desires and a new first love And they're not looking to see how much they can get away with. How much can I sin and still go to heaven? How much can I still sin and go to heaven? That's not the believer. The believer has a heart to pursue holiness and please God, compelled by love for Christ. You want holiness. You want to keep in step with the spirit. And that's radically different than before you were a Christian. Non-Christians are looking for any and every excuse to dive into sin, jump in with it both with both feet and just wallow around in it. That's not the Christian. Makes me think of a time when I was trying to drive this point home to the kids. I've got five kids. Most of them are grown up and gone now. We've just got one in the home. 
And I'm not reading aloud to her any little books at night. She's 15. But when they were little, this was years ago, we'd read at night, read aloud books, and try to pick out good books that had good spiritual truth and good examples. So we had this book we're going through that had this little girl, Mabel. And she had a best friend, Sarah Jane. And Mabel's always trying to do the right thing, loves Jesus. And Sarah Jane, wicked best friend, Sarah Jane. So I was trying to get her to do the wrong thing, tempting her. And so this particular night, the temptation, I'll spare you the details, but it was some temptation and Mabel wanted to stand strong and resist the temptation. But her best friend, Sarah Jane, was trying to get her to do it and to top it off. If she did what Sarah Jane wanted her to do that was wrong, she would get $50. It's a lot of money to little kids, a lot of money to me. And so as a good dad, I leaned forward. All the kids are on the couch and I'm like, oh. I want to be like Mabel, don't you? I don't want to be like Sarah Jane, who would give her soul away just for some money. It's not worth any amount of money in the world to sin, is it, kids? But everybody wasn't tracking with me. (laughs) One of the older kids said, "Uh, I mean, how big a sin and how much money are we talking about? (laughs) And then he said this. Since we're going to sin anyway, we might as well make some money out of the deal. Huh? (laughs) Don't you love the honesty of kids? Like, oh, younger children, don't listen to him. That's not how we fight sin as believers now. But when you're stuck in Romans 7, you can lose perspective. And that's why there's Romans 8. We don't fight alone. You need to see what God's given you that's much more than a resource. He hasn't given us a resource. He's given us a person, the Holy Spirit. Spirit of the risen, living Jesus lives in you. So if you've gotten covered over with fresh guilt again and a sense of condemnation and you're just slugging it out in your own strength, you need to come back to Romans 8. And this post-it note is for you today. It's for you. Oh, yeah. I fight with a free heart. Oh, I don't fight in my own strength. Oh, oh. Number two, second post-it reminder I want you to see. Number two, if you're a Christian, you better keep looking past your birth certificate and take another look at your adoption papers. That's what you see in verse 14 to 17. Past your birth certificate and closer look at your adoption papers. You see, every human being has a birth certificate. That doesn't make you special. But only Christians have spiritual adoption papers on top of that. I have a birth certificate. I pulled it out over the weekend just to make sure. Dated March 18th, 1963. That shows twin baby boys were born to Walter and Carolyn Bigney. On March 18th at St. Joseph's Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. One of those baby boys came into this world weighing six pounds, eight ounces, named Bradley John Bigney. Hello. (laughs) But on February 10th, 1970, I got my spiritual adoption papers. When God broke my little heart as a seven-year-old. Oh, I'd, I'd been in church. I'd sat through services. I'd colored the bulletin. I'd dug through the back of the pew. I'd broke pencils. I'd counted ceiling tiles. I'd done everything the little boys do during church services. But in the mercy of God, this particular Sunday, I was riveted. And the pastor was talking about sin. And they were all sinners. And for the first time, it gripped me. 
He's talking about me. Even though I've never murdered anyone or run a drug ring yet, I'm a sinner. And he was talking about Christ dying on the cross for sinners and that that would be paid for you. It would be yours. You'd be forgiven. You'd be on your way to heaven. I was smitten and convicted of my sin and my great need for a savior. And I couldn't wait by the time we got home to talk to my parents. I got down on my knees next to the couch in in the den there in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I put my trust in Christ as my savior. And turned from my sins as best I could as a seven-year-old. Cried out to God to save me. And at that moment, I was forgiven, justified, and adopted into God's family. Because get this, nobody is born a Christian. As I talk about spiritual things and heaven and hell and God and eternity with people... Uh, Too often I hear this. I've been a Christian all my life. That's a little too long. (laughs) Don't hear me saying you have to know that February 10th, 1970 is when I put my trust in Christ. You may not know a date, but your answer needs to be something along the lines of, I got saved. I was born again. God opened my eyes. I began to understand the truth and beauty of Jesus, my need, my sin. There's got to be some point in your life that you went from darkness to light. Self to Savior. Nobody's born a Christian. It's new birth and it's adoption. You were outside, you were alien, you were separated and he brought you in by his grace. Do you have a time like that in your life? Maybe you're that person just think, I'm pretty good. I grew up in church. I've just always thought, well, today's the day to think differently. When were you born again? When Were you forgiven? When did you become a Christian? Because nobody is born a Christian. Do you have a time in your life? And it may have been a season. There was just this season of weeks or months that God was dealing with me. That's okay. But it's, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Do you have that? Do you have that in your life? You see, Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 hammer home to us powerfully that every single one of us has a birth certificate and a spiritual certificate that's stamped sinner, condemned. But only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, does that change and your spiritual adoption papers supersede your birth certificate. Because God's Word tells us in Romans 5... Every single one of us says when Adam sinned, all sinned and death spread to all men and women. You were born a sinner separated from God. You need a savior. You need new birth. You need conversion. You need to be saved. Whatever term you want to use for it. Has that happened in your life? Do your spiritual adoption papers triumph and trump over your birth certificate today? If you're here and you're a Christian, you better take a look at your adoption papers on a regular basis. Because it's when you look at your adoption papers that you're reminded of some important things. Look at, at them with me. You're reminded in verse 14. Look at verse 14. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. That's the other thing where people get it wrong. You hear rock groups and people that are trying to raise money for farm aid or whatever. We're all the children of God, children of God, children of God. News alert. Unless you're a Christian, you're not a child of God. You're created in the image of God. You're a human being. 
But as many as received him, John 1, 12, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Only Christians are children of God in his family, adopted, redeemed. Your spiritual adoption papers remind you that you are a child of God, verse 14. Look at verse 15. Your adoption reminds you that you don't have to be afraid to call him daddy. Oh, yes, God is holy and just and righteous and incomprehensible. But that same God, while he never reduces any of those characteristics, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and and put your faith in what he did for you, he then also becomes your daddy. Tender, loving, he accepts you. That word right there, if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm not being sloppy or just trying to be hip and too contemporary and not respectful of God. He chooses to present it that way on purpose. That word, Abba, in verse 15, is one of the most tender, everyday, down-to-earth, familiar terms for father. Daddy. He's your daddy. He loves you. He accepts you. He's committed to you. He sings over you. That's what your adoption papers remind you even on your worst day when you've been knocked down by sin. Even when your worst day when you stepped into it. Even in your worst day when Satan deceived you and you believed his lie. Even on your worst day when he's accusing you because he's not just a liar. God's word says he's the accuser of the brethren. He keeps saying, look at you. You call yourself a Christian and you just lost your temper. Look at you. How could you have such a vile thought? Look at you. Look at you. Look at you. Look at you. And when he says that. You need to say back, yes, that is so vile. Yes, that is so real. And that is why I need a savior. That's why Christ is my savior. And my standing before God has nothing to do with my performance and everything to do with his son. That's how you answer Satan back. But you've got to be looking at your spiritual adoption papers regularly. And Romans 8 is one of the ways to do that. You read this and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm a child of God. Oh my goodness, I can call him daddy And look in verse 16 and 17. Your adoption papers remind you, you don't have to grab all the gusto you can and just live life thinking, I got to get this, I got to get this, I got to get this. He says, you're you're an heir. You have an inheritance. I don't know what your earthly parents are going to leave you, if anything, but you've got an inheritance. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. What is his is yours. The riches of Christ are yours. You don't have to live this life grabbing all the gusto you can. From no condemnation to no separation. God's post-it note. Remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. 